0: Hello, I am Dr. Cassidy Freitas, and I'm the host of Holding Space podcast. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm really passionate about connecting with other therapists and exploring the ways in which they are really expanding their reach and sharing their voices in a bigger way, bringing resources and knowledge outside of the therapy room and in today's episode I share my conversation with Dr. Sophie Mort. Dr. Sophie is a licensed clinical psychologist and her mission is just this to bring psychology out of the therapy room and she does this in a really tangible resourceful way on social media and on Instagram. In today's episode we talk about emotional agility and an evidence-based approach that therapists often will use to support the building of emotional agility. And this approach is called acceptance and commitment therapy. We unpack this approach and explore its different components, things like doing values work and building mindfulness training and developing a new and different relationship with our emotions. I'm so excited to share this episode and conversation with all of you. So let's get to it. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. Dr. Soph, I am so happy to be having this conversation with you today and to be sharing your knowledge with the Holding Space podcast audience. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today.
1: Oh my word, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, I would love to first, um, because I know that a lot of listeners are therapists, and even if they're not, I I would love to add some context to who you are. So maybe you could share a little bit about your journey to doing this work.
1: Okay. So I am a clinical psychologist and I trained in the UK. So I think that's slightly different. uh, Yeah. Where did you train?
0: I trained, yeah, here in Southern California.
1: Yes, okay, slightly different, absolutely. Um, And I'm also a yoga teacher, but realistically how I describe myself is I'd say that I spend my days working to get psychology out of the therapy room. You know, into (laughs) people's lives in a way that makes sense to them. Because um, I trained in the National Health Service, so in the UK it's quite different because healthcare is free. And it was wonderful. But people would be on a waiting list for quite some time. And by the time they got to the top of that waiting list and they'd be sitting in front of me, they might have waited a year, I would realize that no matter what kind of service I worked in, I was seeing the same thing over and over again. And that was a gap, I suppose, in basic psychological knowledge. So, you know, um, just simple understandings around emotions, why we have them, why we shouldn't avoid them. um the fight flight freeze response what's happening inside you when you experience stress anxiety anger you know the things that psychologists and other therapists might consider to be really basic kind of psychology 101 I was seeing that people had sat on a waiting list for a long time already experiencing distress becoming increasingly distressed because no one had taken the time to give them the basics so Mm -hmm. Since that point, I set up my Instagram, my blog, I speak on podcasts, I've been working with Happy Not Perfect, all really with this one aim of how do we get the basics into people's lives so they don't have to wait till they're incredibly distressed on a waiting list or, or that they're that one person who gets to see a therapist? How can we tell them in advance so that when distress arises, they know how to show up for themselves?
0: Mm. I love it, and you you do a really a really beautiful job of of bringing your voice and bringing this education and awareness into the larger wellness dialogue and on social media. It's so uh, relatable, tangible, resourceful. I'm just I was really grateful to have found you on social media, and as I was following your work and listening to the resources and um, education that you were offering, I. I, found, I was like, is she talking about acceptance and commitment therapy here? Like, is this sort of like a, a well, some of the, of the lens that she's looking at these things through? Because that is absolutely a lens in which I look at um, my own relationship with emotions and support my clients in. Like, that's definitely a context that I come from. So I wonder if, um, and we can, we're, we're going to do this together. It's would to be a conversation. So I'm not expecting you to be the expert. I'm not the expert. Like I know that we both just, um, really appreciate and value this approach and integrate it into our work along with others. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to hear sort of like what brought you to acceptance and commitment therapy. And can you bring a little bit of, um, how you understand it to, uh, to this episode?
1: Totally. Um, so it's funny, I don't know what kind of I don't know when I first came across it. I think it was probably during the doctorate. Yeah. Um, and probably <laughs> during a placement I had in a chronic pain team where ACT was the main model. And it's funny because I really didn't like it. So I'll explain what I think ACT is in a second, but yeah. When I was working in the chronic pain team, we were told to do acceptance commitment therapy and we were given a ton of metaphors that we could use to describe the therapy to us.
0: (laughs) so many metaphors and acts.
1: (laughs) And I just hated them, you know. For example, was the idea that... um, if you you have when you're experiencing pain, it's like the pain is in front of everything that you see and you're unable to see anything else in the world. And they would get me to hold a clipboard.
0: Oh <laughs> <God>, i have <laughs> totally, I've totally my, done the clipboard. I've, done I've totally that, done the clipboard.
1: And <laughs> yeah, so you say to your client, Okay, so now I'm holding the clipboard in front yes. of you. What can you see? And obviously they're like, well, nothing, your clipboard. And then you say, okay, now I'm going to push on that. You push it away like you're avoiding it. How is it for you now? You you say you know how this goes, right?
0: I but do. The- I, I, when, I was, when I was initially trained in it, I, I probably used this clipboard uh, quite a few times. Yes, I, nice. I, I haven't used it in a few years, but I no, no, use no,
1: no, but no. but used to use it now. And so people, you know, you say the idea is that you want to put the clipboard on your lap and then you're able to see the world. And this is like you taking distance from your pain and looking around. And my clients would be like, what? So I just just let go of the pain and then I can see the world. And I'd be like, mm, yes, this metaphor is quite oversimplified for how hard it is to live in a pain situation. So actually that, it really is the, my first experience of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It sounds like you had a serious, um, a similar experience. But, okay, so going full, you know, full turnaround now. ACT is one of my absolute favourite models. And that is because... I came across the book called The Happiness Trap by Russ Mm -hmm. Harris.
0: Well,
1: yeah. Yes. I think it makes so much sense. So everything changed when I discovered that book. You know, I have always uh, practiced mindfulness myself since I was 18 years old, and we can talk about that later, but couldn't find a model that integrated mindfulness into um, practical type therapies in a way that really made sense for me. And in The Happiness Trap, you know, he talks about this idea that a lot of us are stuck and struggling because we're constantly trying to cling on to this notion that we need to be happy at all times and that we avoid anything that isn't happiness the rest of the time. Yeah. And the way he talked about it to me was just so practical. He gave loads of really lovely and quite lighthearted examples of how you can start to turn towards your pain, how you can start to distance yourself from the things that, um, take over your life so I suppose that leads quite nicely into what you asked me in terms of how do I explain ACT? Yeah. Okay so to me ACT is a model that allows you to create space between you, your thoughts, your judgments, your urges, and any other automatic response or repeated pattern that you often engage in. You know, that kind of private behavior that goes on all the time and impacts how you show up, the stuff that no one else really sees. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's what's so different about it, I suppose, compared to CBT, is that It doesn't teach people to challenge or push away what is happening. I know that community doesn't teach you to push them away, but that is how we normally show up in our lives. So it doesn't teach you to challenge what is happening. It teaches you instead to allow your automatic patterns to arise, but create distance so you don't get caught up in them. And I just love that because if you think about, for example, how much negative self-talk we engage in, how our inner critic is constantly playing, how old stories we've told ourselves our whole lives arise in our mind. Acts can help you imagine that they're like a radio, you know, playing in the background Mm. and it can give you the skills to turn the volume up or turn the volume down depending on what you need. Mm. And it teaches you, in my mind, to be able to show up to the thoughts and feelings that really cause pain the ones you really want to avoid. So, for example, following a significant loss or anything, it could be to do with anxiety, stress, anger, anything that's happening. It helps you to be able to make space for these really difficult feelings so that you can continue to show up and start to move towards a kind of valued life again. And acceptance doesn't mean agreeing with everything that shows up. I think that is a common misconception. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. It means becoming sensitive to what is arising for you, gaining that distance between your knee-jerk response and what you want to choose. So, for example, if someone insults you and you feel bad, with ACT, you're not saying accept the fact that you have these really strong, vulnerable or judged feelings that come up and don't do anything about it. It means take a moment, notice what arises, and then decide what you're going to do next, such as standing up for yourself. Mm and the final thing i'd say which because i don't think anyone really talks about it is the commitment part so we've got acceptance and commitment therapy so commitment is this idea that we're going to agree to commit ourselves to the actions that align with our values each and every day so it's it's stepping away from a goal-driven life you know which actually often makes us feel quite um Makes us feel like we're failing, or once we reach our goal, we feel good for a short period of time, and then think, "What's next?" Yep. It tells us to look to our values instead—the things that we can chip away at each day and commit ourselves to showing up in the world in that way. Mm.
0: Oh yes, Sophie. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) Let me give a little bit of my context because I think it's it's similar, but again, it's my my own journey to act. So I um, I was working in a family medicine clinic. Um, Also, working with a lot of folks experiencing chronic pain, chronic illness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, you know, doing a lot of CBT because at my site, like that was sort of the gold standard. It was the language that the physicians also could speak. um, And we're in a collaborative care setting. And my supervisor, that was, you know, um, CBT and motivational interviewing were his primary approaches. And I, I know for, I know that CBT works with a lot of people. I mean, clearly it's evidence-based it's, it is the gold standard in many cases for many reasons, and it can really work for some people. But I also found that particularly when it came to experiences that are just chronic, whether it's chronic pain or. Or just like the fact that you know, like per a mom, the fact that like guilt and shame would pop up, and like it was like yeah. I was, we would use things CBT. Very a big part of CBT, right, is sort of like challenging and restructuring our negative cognitions, and I yeah. found that for a lot of these experiences that are like are going to continue to show up. Like anxiety is something we're wired for. Like anxiety, even if you don't have a generalized anxiety disorder, right, or an anxiety disorder, like anxiety is still something we're wired for. It's still going to pop up. Um, You know, guilt is another thing we're wired for because it tends to show up to show us what our, like, what our values are, because something feels out of alignment, maybe with our values. And so these are things that we're wired for, they are going to continue to show up. And so when I was working with my clients to, you know, challenge and restructure the negative thoughts and cognitions mm-hmm. connected to these experiences, it almost for some of these more chronic experiences created, um, it felt like it created more suffering. It yeah, was like, like the pain, yeah, the, the pain, the pain was there. But then this, like, this, like, fighting and like struggling with these cognitions seemed to actually bring my clients deeper into suffering. And, yeah. So it really came, like, I, I didn't receive any ACT training in my master's program. And in my PhD program, it was mentioned here and there, but there was no nothing, like, no direct training around it. Mm-hmm. So I was doing my own, like, research in terms of, like, approaches and working with um, more chronic conditions um, mm-hmm. and came across ACT and ended up deciding to sign up for a training with the founder of ACT, uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes. And it just changed. This is not going to sound dramatic, but like it changed everything. Like it just, and I think a big piece of it also is that I aligned with like my own view of how problems happen and how solutions can come. And so I think as a clinician, like there are so many different approaches out there and it is important work for us to kind of look at like our own worldviews of like how how do we get stuck and how do we get unstuck um, from our own experiences? Because I think that that, you know, when we can find alignment with an approach, it can be really a really helpful guide. And so, you know, I did the training and I started implementing it in my own life first and foremost, and then with clients. And it has been it has been such a powerful tool and game changer and just perspective shift. When we, like these clients that I've been working with for like a year or more, um, where they were just, there was so much stuckness around some of these things, like just that that shift. And again, I did also use the clipboard metaphor. And just like for, for anybody listening, like quickly, the, clip, the, clipboard met, the clipboard metaphor basically is like the clipboard represents the thing that you struggle with most in your life. And there's, you know, you use the clipboard to like put it right in front of their nose. And you're like, this is when like you were like struggling with and like can't see beyond your pain. And then you like put it, you like, push it away. Like this is like you trying to avoid the pain and then you put it in your lap and you put your hands up and your hands are free to do other things, but it's coming along for the ride with you. That's like basically like the, the like, you know, clip notes version of the clipboard metaphor. And I use that a lot. And it's funny when you brought it up because I remember actually using this in like when I was training other clinicians and I look back and I'm like, there's just so many better, there's so many other better ways to explain this approach that is so much more nuanced, um, and really speaks to the heart of it. Um, but it, there was this shift for many of my clients of, of now I'm developing a new kind of relationship with the things that I'm struggling with most in my life. yeah, yeah, and it's, it's it just it really changed things and shifted things, and and I love that you're 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 also bringing up this um commitment piece here because I think that I think that for many of us, like we can we can maybe begin to understand the the first the perspective shift of like I'm gonna I'm gonna work on developing a new relationship with my emotions and the things that I struggle with. Like I can I can. I can turn towards them. I can maybe even be curious about them, and maybe eventually be, have compassion for them, and see see the ways in which, say, anxiety is trying to offer you some important data. But obviously, you know, you don't want you don't want it to jump in the driver's seat. And sometimes the data it's offering is not helpful. Also, and people can maybe wrap their heads around that. Um, but then the commitment part, right? So it's like, okay, so now that we know what data in these emotional experiences is helpful, like how do we know what to do next? Um, And then that's when the values work comes in. And when when I discovered the values work, it created space for me to have conversations with my clients that I was missing with CBT. Mm-hmm. It was like, I want to talk about meaning and like the things that are the, like the things that are deeply important to you that are not in alignment right now, because you're in this mm-hmm. suffering struggle cycle with these painful experiences. Um, so I just, I love that you brought up that piece and, and I'm curious to hear from you. Um, Sophie, what, what do you how do you sort of uh engage in these kind of conversations with your clients around deeper meaning and values like how cuz people can be like yes I know I have values right but then it's like <laughs> like so but how do I actually do this work
1: So it's funny um I do this work with myself I actually have this conversation with my friends as often as I possibly can it's not just my clients you know I think we live in a society that tells us to be busy all of the time to be nothing less than perfect and so all of us think we have values but instead we're trying to get the next job um get the next grade buy the next thing and so actually when I talk about values with anyone I'm this isn't one of those subtle conversations I have. You know, I use ACT as one of many different models. But when it comes to values, I'm there with a piece of paper and a pen. I actually, I actually work online, so I use a screen. <laughs> but um, so how I do it with people is firstly, I don't think people really know what values are. OK, I didn't until ACT. So let's think about what they are first. I explain to people that values, as you said, are where we find meaning in life. They're the things we care about and consider important. And all of us have different values, and actually, they can change over time. So, kind of, I heard someone say that crudely the difference between goals and values are that goals can be achieved. Whereas values are like a direction on a compass. Yes. The direction that we want to head in. So for example, a goal could be going to a certain country, whereas a value could be continuously heading west.
0: Mm-hmm. Does that make it sense? It does, yeah. yeah. Like goals are like the benchmarks. But yes, I I've, yeah. I've totally use that metaphor as well of of values being more the compass. Look at us. We're still using metaphors, even though we thought that they were... I'm now
1: discerning with the ones
0: that yeah. I use. <laughs>
1: But learning act i learned it very much in a this is the first step this is the second step and now i use it more intuitively yeah. so another example would be you know a goal might be to have um a specific kind of relationship so for example i want a close relationship whereas a value would be maybe um showing kindness in relationships so you don't just do that once, do you? You don't just wake up and you say to someone, I think you're wonderful, and then you're done for the rest of your life. Okay. You you engage in that kindness, those acts that make you closer over and over again. So you may end up ironically meeting your goal quite a lot quicker when you show up to your values, but our aim instead is to... I suppose the whole thing about act is, you know, I said you're trying to create a gap between your knee-jerk response and what you yeah. do. But in that moment, thinking, how do I align with my value? How do I, in this situation, connect with the thing that is meaningful to me? So when I talk about this with people, I actually get them to put a list of topics in order. So for example, I don't know if you do this, but I'll be like, okay, so out of family relationships, physical well-being uh, romantic or kind of close relationships friendships and social parenting recreation employment education training community and spirituality which of those are at the top and which are less important to mm-hmm. you what I love about this is people tend to do this quite quickly at first so most people for example put um their work really high mm-hmm. up and then you okay if you're thinking about future you you know if you're not thinking about barriers right now if you're thinking about the kind of life you want to lead how would you organize these and suddenly relationships often come to the surface as well as physical well-being yeah. so those are kind of how I think about topics of values then I go through each one in order of the most important to the least thinking what are the qualities underneath each of these headings that you value so for example in family relationships it could be how do you want to show up what are the qualities you want to bring to those relationships what do you um enjoy when other people show up to you in a way that feels good so for example closeness honesty Mm. um openness and then it's really lovely because you have a really clear and concrete structure of these are the things i value and specifically in this order and through that process, not only do people get a clearer understanding of themselves and where they'd like to go, but it's incredibly profound the shift that you yeah. see. People realise, wow, I've been caught up in this goal around work, when actually, um, what I value is sharing information with others. Mm. So a really good example would actually be coming on this show. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know if this helps, but. Um, I was thinking about ACT in relationship to how I show up in the public space. So I was on a panel yesterday. I was on a panel last week. I've been in three podcasts over the last week. And they make me feel incredibly anxious, okay? (laughs) My imposter syndrome comes up. My performance performance anxiety is right. I have thoughts such as, I bet I sound, you know, insert insulting comment here. I bet other people are thinking, insert insulting comment here and in the past when I was fused with with my thoughts so when I could there was no different distance between my thoughts and feelings and how I am I would have heard those thoughts and believed Mm. them the anxiety would have overwhelmed me but now with act so with mindfulness is what I mean I'm able to observe those thoughts from a distance know that they are a pattern of mine and then choose to come back to my value which is sharing psychology with people in the world mm. and by connecting with that value and connecting with my center so my breath and mindfulness I can continue doing the work that I want to do
0: it's beautiful it's it It really is these are the things that we can come back to it's like it's oh. like a I don't know if this resonates at all with your experience, but I'm almost picturing like there's like a secure base. There's like a foundation of this is what is, this is what is deeply meaningful and important to me. And, and even when like the surroundings feel treacherous or even when like the threats come up or, you know, the, the parts of myself that are afraid I can notice them. I can understand why they probably showed up because, hey, anxiety probably showed up for you around maybe even, you know, on those going to those panels or coming on the show because there is that part of you that that wants to to do it well. Right. Like it it feels important to you. And again, what's interesting is that that's directly connected to that value of yours of wanting to bring psychology to to the pop, to the people, right? Like to to bring that education and bring it out of the therapy room. And so if you didn't give yourself a chance to create that space, you wouldn't have gotten a chance to notice that. And then therefore continue to move forward towards the thing that's connected to your value. You would have maybe not done it or like rescheduled or canceled or any of those things. And. Mm Can I just can I just um, normalize that and and share um, that like I one hundred percent can relate to that. I mean, even like this is this is my podcast show, and even so, getting on, I'm like, oh gosh, like do I know enough about act to like guide this dialogue and conversation? And you know, it's just it's so. And I think that we often, um, we feel shame around these experiences, right? So then we don't talk about them. And that just contributes, continues to contribute to this larger idea and discourse that like everybody is happy. Everybody feels secure. Like everybody feels more secure than I do or you do. Like everything yeah. and that, that and the goal is supposed to be security all the time, like free of pain, free of anxiety. And it's just not true.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I love I loved what you were saying, actually, about um, how ACT has helped you in comparison to CBT, because there is something, I really do love CBT, so I'm not doing it down, yeah. but it's sometimes in CBT, when we talk about cognitive distortions, for example, unhelpful, unhelpful thinking styles, there is something really normalising in that, because you say, we all engage in this. But the way that we say unhelpful thinking styles or cognitive distortions suggests that there's something that needs to be fixed mm. in you. Whereas with ACT, I think this, um, to me, it's about being open to your experience so that it doesn't rule you. It's noticing your patterns and choosing how to proceed. But in a way that says we all have this. We all have our own patterns, our own knee-jerk responses. You don't need to change them. You're already exactly where you need to be. You just need to find an anchor. Mm in that storm and for me it is a very
0: normalizing practice yes Yes. so when i because i do integrate cbt into my practice um, still because again i do it's an approach that works for many people Um, one of the things that i have found to be really that people Really profound experience for folks is like, let's say I hand them a list of cognitive distortions and I ask them to go through the list and to identify the ones that they resonate with. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients, like, with as they're looking through, like, tears in their eyes and looking up at me, like, yeah. how did you know? Like, how did you know that? And there's a name for it, like, and it's such yeah. a a really important moment to feel seen and to feel like I'm not alone. Um, and then how yeah. I tend to integrate act sort of in following that right is 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 one when I hand them the list I I don't call it cognitive distortions. it's just like, common negative thoughts that people have you know, know. like um, yeah, and maybe. and then and then from there um from there i'll start to integrate more of the act work um but i think there is there is so much power in being able to feel seen and to feel like wait so yeah. i'm not the only one who, who yeah, like catastrophizes everything or um has yeah. this like tunnel vision or like you know protect, like, can feel like i can read people's minds, like. I'm not the only
1: one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So hand it out, I always say that I've been through at least, you know, at least five things on the sheet in the last hour. <laughs>
0: yeah, <exactly. laughs> oh, I love that. I love how you show up as human. Whenever I share things like that, my clients look at me like, it's so nice when I see you being human. Like I love, like whenever I make mistakes or yeah. like if I'm late to an appointment or like I like forget something, like they just, you know, so many times clients are like, oh, I just love when I catch you being human. I'm like, yes, 100% messy. I think it allows
1: you to balance out the power dynamic. Oh, absolutely.
0: Okay. I have like two questions and I'm like looking at our time, but they, they both feel important. So I'm going to ask both and then I'm going to let you decide like, where do we want to spend our time Um, just based on what feels mm-hmm. good? So the first question I'm, that's kind of rumbling inside me is like this mindfulness piece. And like, cause again, it's another thing, like values. It's like, okay, I get it. Like mindfulness is important, but then, To actually know, like, what does it take to like build that muscle? Because it's not, it's not something that you can just pull out when you need it. Um, And so, uh, how do you approach um, working with clients and building um, like uh, mindfulness, um, awareness, and skills, and and all of that? And then the other piece that I'm so curious about, but it might be a bigger conversation, is I would love to hear like what you integrate with ACT. I I have a few thoughts on things that I have found that I feel like are really good fits with ACT um, just for the clinicians who are listening, but also for the people who are listening who want to be like, you know, um, uh, aware consumers of therapeutic processes, right? And like theories and like want to be able to know, like, what should I ask if I'm, you know, talking to a therapist and what kind of approach is my therapist using? I think that people deserve to be let into those conversations too. So, Anyway, uh, mindfulness and what you <laughs> integrate.
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, gosh, they're both great questions. Um, I do. I could answer the second one really quickly without expanding. Yeah, yeah let's do that. And the mindfulness in more detail. So I have to say what's really funny is I would have in the past been able to say I integrate cognitive behavioral therapy, compassion-focused therapy, act with... Um, <laughs> A bit of psychodynamic ideas. I do a lot of narrative therapy. So a lot of externalizing work. Yes, yes, yes. Systemic theory. And then I bring in a lot of intersectional feminism and other Mm -hmm. social justice models. So it's really hard actually for me now to point out the exact parts or times when I use specific um, models because I remember when I was a trainee and I asked my supervisor, you know, how do you know which model to use when? And he gave me this really dissatisfying answer, which was something along the lines of, well, you don't, you know, all you need to do is be able to relate to an individual. That's more important than what you do. And I remember thinking, well, that's well and good for you to say, because you've got a hundred models at your (laughs) fingertips and you now pick and choose as you go along and you think you're just relating, but, but you're not, you have all these models. And now I finally understand that, that act, I use explicitly in terms of the values, in terms of mindfulness and in terms of cognitive diffusion techniques, so for example, the fun things or the fun practices or the the lightening I suppose, the jovial ways you can show up to your thoughts and the stories. But the ways that I use that within those other models, it's really hard to explicitly tell you how I weave mm-hmm. the narrative mm-hmm. for each client, because everyone brings something different, and therefore I show up differently yeah. each time. So that's a kind of vague answer, yeah. I no, suppose. I it's, I think
0: it, it, I think it really, um, it really resonates. You know, I was as I asked the question, I was like, huh, and how would I answer this question? Yeah. No. Um, and what's yes. interesting is a, a few of the theories that you mentioned, like narrative, family systems, um, mm-hmm. and narrative. A narrative really include narrative is an approach for those who aren't familiar that um, really pays attention to this, the narratives that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell mm-hmm. ourselves, and, and externalizing problems, um, which I think is really re- I can find really connects well with cognitive diffusion, creating that space between yeah. ourselves and the thing that we're struggling with. Um, and also has a social justice component to it as well. Um, and with an overarching family systems approach, um, because that's like the the basis of my training, um, and also yeah. a little bit of internal family systems and like parts, the different parts yeah. within us. Um, and so anyway, yeah, that's, but again, it's like, I have a lot of uh, clinicians I work with, either in supervision or consultation that will ask for like, the formula of these different, negative approaches. And again, it's like, you know, the, the best way for me to to share that is to actually get to know the specifics of the case you're working with. Because without that, without the nuance of this individual person's experience and what's, what they've experienced and what they're bringing into the room um, and being there with them, it's 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 not a formula, you know? Like, I don't think that people fit into formulas in that way, so...
1: Exactly. But what I think is the, is the thing that every single human on this planet wants or needs is is authentic mm, connection yeah. and um to be held in mind. And so I suppose my overarching framework is yeah. that. <laughs> and then within that, I'm hopping between lots of different models, but also going full circle back to what you said at the beginning. What have I found has profoundly um, supported me and the people around me? throughout my life because, you know, therapeutic relationship is this thing that um, is being, has been found repeatedly to be almost more important than what you actually do in the room. And so if you can um, share with someone in a compassionate way, things that you authentically believe in, like I authentically believe in all of those models I just described, then you will have a connection to it in a way that is conveyed to the person you have in the therapy room with you. So, Yes, it is definitely a privileged position to be able to say, "Oh, I draw a little bit from all of these different models," <laughs> because uh, I remember a time where I was exactly like you're talking about. Like, please just tell me exactly what to do. I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't
0: that long ago. I can remember it very. <laughs> it long ago. Long ago. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: And so, do we have a moment? I suppose just to focus on yes, mindfulness? absolutely. Okay, so the first thing I do, and maybe we only have time for this, is to think about the myths. Mm. I think the thing that gets in the way of people engaging truly in a mindfulness practice which all that means is showing up on purpose to the present moment you know without judgement repeatedly the first mm. thing that gets in the way are the myths Yeah. so everyone says to me for example but I can't clear my
0: mind
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. if, no I mean of, of course, course you can't, you
0: can't. <laughs> like the boulder.
1: We <laughs> <laughs> not wanting to be cleared. You know, your mind wants to spend its time looking for dangers in your environment. That's its job.
0: Yeah.
1: It's job, exactly. And nowadays, the things it can, uh, thinks of as dangers are linked to the beliefs you have. So, for example, if we just go back to this simple belief of needing to be busy and perfect, your mind is constantly running through your to do lists constantly looking for things that you didn't do quite right so of course you can't clear your mind so the first thing is mindfulness isn't about clearing the mind it's about finding an anchor which i often think of as the breath and taking a moment to focus on that sensation of the inhale sensation of the exhale and just noticing the busyness so i i think myth busting is first um in fact for me along that line of the myth i always say to people you know When you start doing a breath-based mindfulness practice, actually, the most mindful bit is the bit where you've noticed your thoughts have wandered off and you choose to bring it back. I think that really empowers people to think, oh, I've just noticed myself and I've come back to the present moment. That was mindfulness, not the general, oh no, my thoughts have drifted off, I'm failing at mindfulness again. Yeah, So myth-busting, I think, is really important. And another thing is, I do think that when you start practicing mindfulness, it is very useful to have a formal practice. So you sit down, for example, and have anything from a five-minute audio recording that you sit and listen to, to some people do you know, up to hours. Um, but I think that another myth is it doesn't have to be formal. People always say to me, I don't have time to do 40 minutes. It's like mindfulness can be done whilst you're doing the washing up mindfulness can be done whilst you're in the shower it is simply that moment where you come back to all of your senses and you notice what is here right now and I think once you do that with people once you bust both those myths suddenly people can go away and suddenly think oh I'm walking along the street I'm going to be mindful I will notice oh the heel of my foot touching the floor the ball of my foot touching the floor, my toes touching the floor. I noticed that my mind has drifted off on a busy activity, but I've come back now to my left foot, you know? So to me, starting a mindfulness practice is about creating space for you to allow yourself to find it really hard. Because <laughs> that's the final myth is, people tell me mindfulness will make me feel great, but I feel <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we <me> do. <too. laughs> Every time, I'm like yeah, totally. I mean, it goes against everything your brain wants you yeah. to do. You're rushing around, you're rushing around. You've been avoiding your feelings, avoiding your thoughts. Suddenly, you sit down, you take a moment, you say to yourself, "Right, I'm going to see what's here. I'm going to turn inwards." And your brain's like, "Ah, all these things, look at me!" And every time you try to come back to the breath, your brain tries to pull you back harder. So, mindfulness isn't about joy. Mm. It isn't. No. About- good. It's about simply allowing, allowing those feelings of, I hate this to arise and simply noticing them and coming back to the breath. So those are, I suppose, the starting points when I'm working with people and thinking about mindfulness. What are the myths? What are the things they believe to be true? And how do we create a foundation which will support them to even get started?
0: Okay. So basically what you've just done is you have like, there's a few episodes on this podcast that are like um that you know are breaking these different pieces apart. So like there's an episode if people are interested early on about defining your values. There's an episode on how to breathe. There's an episode on self-compassion and mindfulness. There's one or two on there. And I feel like what you've just done in this conversation in this episode is like integrated all of these pieces into like how they connect to each other and relate to each other and I'm just so grateful for you for doing this with me and having this conversation okay so where can people find you and continue to follow your work um, so they can continue to receive your knowledge warmth wisdom all those things
1: oh that's so nice okay um so um my website is drsof.com very straightforward d-r-s-o-p-h.com i have a blog on there as well where you can find really solid resources um my instagram is at underscore dr soph can you believe it someone is at dr soph who is this person they have a private account and i can't seem to get hold of them i'm like who are you we need to meet (laughs) so at underscore dr soph and then finally, I don't know if you know about the Happy Not Perfect app, but I just think it ties in so well to what we're talking about. It's mm. a mindfulness app for people who who really are reluctant to, to practice mindfulness. Um, it's really excellent. It's um, It has these short recaps you can do each day that take a matter of minutes and it has longer mindfulness sessions and then... I'm, con- I'm one of the, inverted commas, experts on the site. I'm the clinical psychologist who talks about, for example, what are emotions? What is anxiety? Talk through different things, giving you a, a simple breakdown and some really concrete steps as to how to move forwards. So, yeah, those are some of the main
0: areas. That is wonderful. And what I'll do is I will add all of these links and resources into the show notes for this podcast. So if you're listening right now, and you're wondering how to get to any of these resources, look at the show notes, and there'll be some direct links for everybody right there. Dr. Soap, thank you so much for taking the time. This was (laughs) such a joy to do with you. I'm so grateful.
1: Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much
0: you've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. If you did, you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Have a great day.